Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 and 34. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, and neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, if your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to this span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, though you are little faithful? Therefore do not be anxious of therefore do not be anxious saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The Lord is good with his word. Amen. It's one of those mornings I could just have doing worship. That song, Only a Holy God, has just kind of gotten a hold of the, the congregation the last few weeks, and you guys sing it out so sweet, and it's a pleasure to be up here and hear you singing it back with the Lord. Um, you may notice this morning that I'm slightly off-center for everybody in here. I think I realized last week when we recorded the sermon that for everybody in the overflow room, I'm literally only in the camera when I'm standing over in the middle. So we're moving over a little bit. So we just adjust this way slightly. All right, so we're going to start this morning in Luke 10. In Luke 10, Luke records the story of Martha and Mary's interaction with Jesus uh, when he went to Martha's home. And Luke tells us that Mary, uh, that sorry, Luke tells us that Mary, Martha's sister, when Jesus arrived there, she sat at the Lord's feet and intently listened to his teaching. While Martha, on the other hand, was distracted trying to serve the guests that were in her home. And Martha, we can assume, Scripture doesn't tell us, but we can assume that Martha gets increasingly frustrated with the fact that her sister is not helping her serve the guests in her home. Because she goes up to Jesus, and she's hoping that Jesus is going to intervene in the situation. And the intervention, I would say, that Martha was expecting was that Jesus would go to Mary and say, Mary, get up and go help your sister, right? But Luke 10, verse 41 and 42 tells us how the Lord actually responded to Martha. It says, but the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from 
So instead of rebuking Mary for not helping Martha, Jesus does the opposite. Jesus commends Mary for choosing the good portion. And though he has concern for Martha's anxiousness, he reminds Martha, Martha, there's one thing that's necessary. So what is the good portion that Jesus commends Mary for choosing? And what is the one thing that he tells Martha is necessary? And I think the answer is in verse 33 of today's scripture that Nick just read for. Seek first the kingdom of God. You see, there were things to be done in Martha's house. Right? There were guests to be served. Jesus alludes to her being troubled by many things, but, but Jesus wants Martha to see those many things that she's anxious about should not be troubling her, especially not in that moment. You know, we, we humans, we have this tendency to spend a lot of time and a lot of thought on things that we believe are necessities when life actually has very few real necessities. And poor Martha was doing this just this. She was getting caught up with what she thought was necessary in that moment. But there was one thing necessary in that moment, Jesus said. There was one thing that made sense for Martha to do. Yes, there were other things to be done in Martha's house with guests there, but there was something more important for her and her guests to seek. Seek first the kingdom of God, Martha. And think about it in that moment. When you read this scripture, like God himself, the Messiah, was in Martha's home. Like, forget about the dishes, Martha. God is in your house. And he's teaching and so Jesus commends Mary for recognizing this and choosing the good portion. She laid aside something that was good. It, it wasn't as though what Martha was doing, trying to serve those in her house, was a bad thing. It's just that Mary understood there's a difference between a good thing and an ultimate. And in that moment, Mary chose the ultimate thing. Mary had a single-minded need of seeking the kingdom of God. And I love the picture that Luke paints. He paints this almost childlike picture of Mary sitting attentively at Jesus' feet. It kind of reminds me of a, a kindergarten student sitting at the feet of their teacher while the teacher's reading them a book. You can picture Martha at Jesus' feet enthralled in what he's saying, hanging on every word of his teaching. I'm sorry, Mary, not Martha. Mary's response reminds me of that, that childlike faith that we're called to have, that Jesus asks and commands his followers to have, this, this childlike hunger that we're supposed to have in us that unfortunately sometimes gets dulled as we get older, as we follow Jesus for more and more years. And meanwhile, poor Martha was distracted from seeking the kingdom of God because all the things that she thought was necessary in the moment. And Jesus lovingly reminds Martha of a principle that you and I need to be reminded of from time to time because we can all be Martha's sometimes. Right? We can all focus too much energy on things that we think are necessary. And Jesus reminds Martha and reminds us that our priorities matter to him. He cares about our priorities. And our highest priority as followers of Christ is to seek 
It's a reminder, once again, as we've seen all over the Sermon on the Mount as we've been going through this series, that our priorities have changed in coming to Christ. When he defeated sin and death on the cross, when we placed our faith in his atoning work, we became a new person. And we, agreed, we were given new priorities. Listen, there may be someone in here this morning. There may be someone in the overflow room this morning who have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, this is a, a free offer of salvation that is available to you when you recognize that you are a sinner, rebellious to God. You are in need of grace, but you cannot save yourself. And God has lovingly given that grace through Jesus on the cross who died for you by taking your guilt upon his shoulders so that you may once again live life freely with your heavenly father, no longer separated in rebellion to God. And when you accept that free gift, you become a new creation and the old has passed away and you too then have new priorities in your life. It's this beautiful exchange that happens. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, and it doesn't mean that we no longer have needs. Nor does it mean that we no longer work for those needs. But we recognize then that we have a greater need. And that, that greater need, that greater desire, it rules and it reigns over all of our earthly needs. And it governs how we pursue those needs. Remember, in all of Matthew chapter 6, we talked about this, that Jesus is concerned with how Christians live in light of having God as our Father. And in this section that Nick read for us, that we're focused on this morning, he's, he's teaching us how to respond and how to handle our basic needs in light of being a child of God. Because we need to be reminded at times, like poor Martha, who kind of got things a little bit muddled up, that we no longer need to chase not only treasures like we looked at last week, but also we no longer have to be consumed with worry over necessities either. And so this morning, we're going to look at three things. First, we're going to look at why we need not worry about our need. And then we're going to look at what happens when we do. And last, we're going to look at what it means to seek the kingdom first so we may live life with a proper mindset toward our need. So Jesus begins the new section in verse 25 with the word therefore, right? He starts with therefore to point us back to verse 19 to 24 that we looked at last week that he had just previously taught. And, and we looked at these, these verses last week and we talked about how they're all about laying up treasures. There's this danger of us laying up treasures on earth. There's this danger of being double-minded by trying to serve God and serve money at the same time. And it's impossible to do. And I think Jesus points us back to these verses to remind us of the dangers of earthly wealth and earthly possessions. And then he makes an assumption in the therefore that his people, his true followers, will make the right choice and will serve God, not money. And verse 25, therefore, concludes that because of that choice that we made to serve God, to be devoted to him, there is no need for us to be anxious about our life. There's no need for us to be anxious about what we need, because as we are devoted to God, God is devoted to us, and he will take care of us. And that is the point that Jesus is trying to make in verse 25. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. 
what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Jesus begins by giving us a command in verse 25. He says, do not be anxious. And the, the Greek word that's translated anxious is this word marinao. There's any Greek scholars in here? I may not have pronounced that right. You can correct me after. And it comes from this root word, and it, it refers to something not being whole. It refers to something that, that is being drawn in opposite directions. Something is being pulled apart. So in this command not to be anxious, Jesus is alluding to the fact that, that anxiousness reveals a heart that is being drawn in opposite directions and a person that is not completely steadfast in their conviction. And it's out of that wavering, that anxiousness grows. Maybe with the story of Mary and Martha again, we saw that Mary was steadfast. She was constant. She had this single-minded devotion to the Lord. Whereas Martha was being pulled between two things. And the result for Martha was anxiousness and trouble. The picture that we get in the Greek word reminded me as I was thinking about it of the parable of the sower that Jesus teaches in Matthew 13. In that parable, some of the seeds are, are sown and fall, they fall against thorns, which choke them, and the seeds were unable to grow. And in the explanation of that parable, Jesus says that the seeds that fell amongst the thorns represented people who hear the word of God, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches deafen their ears to the word, and it proves Untruthful. This is the effect of worry and anxiety. What is plainly evident from the parable of the sower is that anxiety and worry over the cares of the world, the things that would be considered necessities in our lives, can have a deeply detrimental impact on our faith. So much so that for some people, it's those very things that keep them. Jesus lists some of the things that he has in mind that we can get anxious over. He refers to food, and he refers to drink, and he refers to clothing as examples of the necessities of our life. And I think it's obvious why he chooses these three things, because apart from maybe shelter, those are the most basic needs that would come to any one of our minds when we were thinking of, what do I need to survive? Food. Any water, any clothing. And Jesus is commanding us not to worry about those, not to worry about our basic needs. And in the following verses, after verse 25, he gives us some very good reasons why we are not to worry. But he also gives us a very big reason for why we shouldn't worry in verse 25 as well. He says in verse 25, do not be anxious about your life. Is life not more than food? And the body more than clothing. What Jesus is doing there is he's, he's making a logical argument for us from greater to lesser as a reason for why we shouldn't worry about such things. He's saying, is not, is not life more than food? Is not the body more than clothing? He's pointing out a very simple principle to try to bring peace to our hearts. He's basically saying, if, if God has given you life, why would you not trust him to give you what you need that would sustain that life? 
If God has given you a body, why would you not trust him with what you need to be clothed for that body? Your life, your body is so much greater, so much more meaningful than the things required to sustain it. So Jesus is arguing from greatest to lesser here. God gave you breath in your lungs. He gave you blood flowing through your veins. Doesn't it follow that the things you need to survive, he will also provide as they're so much lesser than those greater things? So that's one reason that Jesus gives, not to worry. But beyond this significant reason, Jesus also gives us two examples of God's provision as further arguments for why we shouldn't worry. He gives one in verse 26. And then the other one's in verse 28 to 30. First, he gives an example regarding food in verse 26. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? So Jesus points us to nature. He says, look at the birds. They don't sow. They don't reap. They don't make provision the way that we do. And yet, your Heavenly Father feeds them. And here's why this is good news to you. Because you are of so much more value than the birds. Right? So now, at first, Jesus is not saying that we don't work for our food. And so we just sit there and wait for God to drop it in our hands. right? Because birds, they have to work for their food. They search for their food. But there's this beautiful partnership between nature and the sovereign hand of God. That as the bird searches, God provides. And it's the same for us. Right? We work for our food. And we have to work harder than we should because of the curse, because of sin that's entered the world. Right? This is part of the curse of sin that man would have to toil the ground harder and more than we should have to bring forth sustenance. But as we work, God provides. So we, we work, but we don't worry, because Jesus' argument is God is so sovereign that his concern even includes feeding birds. Like, that's an incredible picture when you read that. The way that Jesus says that, he actually says, your heavenly Father feeds the birds. Like, God actively is feeding the birds. So if God's sovereignty is so pervasive that he cares for even the smallest birds, will he not care for you who are so much more valuable? Right? Like, you and I have literally been made in the image of God. Right? Nothing else in creation can say that. There's nothing else in creation where God held counsel in the Godhead and decided, let us make man in our image. You are inherently valuable because of that fact. We are far more valuable than creation. So will God not take care of us? Not only that, but we don't need to stop. We can go so much further. We're talking about a God who sent his son to die for us. What does Paul say in Romans 8.32? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Right? Jesus didn't die for the birds. He didn't die for all the creation. He died for humanity. He died for us. God has invested a lot in his people. 
He is sacrificed deeply for his people. So Paul's logic is sound. If he even gave up his only son for all of us, how will he not gracious give us all things? And that has to include the things that we need. We don't even have to stop there. We can consider the words that Jesus uses in verse 26. He says, he's your heavenly father. And we're not talking about some faraway God. We're not talking about some God in the universe. We're talking about a God that is close to us. A God that is full of feeling. A God that is loving. But just think about it. If your parents in here, you know what it is to provide for your children. You know that when you have children, there is nothing else that you want to do than provide them what is necessary for them to live and for them to flourish. And Jesus says in Matthew 7, 11, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who's in heaven give you good things? And if we, our heart for our children is, I want to give you what you need. I want to provide for you. How much more is our Father's heart in heaven that he wants to give us all that we need because we are valuable? He has adopted us as his children. Jesus then gives us a second example of God's provision. This time regarding hope. This is why are you anxious about Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more you? Oh, you lilies. Again, the, the examples of lilies doesn't mean that we don't work for our clothes. We work for the provision that we need, but we trust that God will provide. Jesus uses the picture of a flower, I think, who cannot reap, who, who cannot sow, even unlike the bird, cannot work for what it needs. I think Jesus uses the picture of a flower to show God's extravagant provision over his creation. Even this flower, which is of little consequence, is better arrayed than King Solomon in all of his glory, Jesus said. And we're talking about the richest man who ever lived. We're talking about the wisest man who ever lived. A man whose array, a man whose adornments made other monarchs of his day just look at him in awe. We turn to 1 Kings 10, 4-7. We see when the Queen of Sheba comes to see Solomon. This is what it says. It says, and when the Queen of Sheba had seen all of the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he had offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and your wisdom, but I did not believe the report until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the hat. Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I have. Yet Jesus said, the lilies of the field are better arrayed than you. The principle is the same as the first example. If God arrays such 
lesser things in such beauty, will he not clothe you who are abundantly more? And the answer is resounding. But we struggle to believe. We struggle to believe. I said earlier, when Jesus tells us not to be anxious, there's this illusion to being pulled in different directions, not being whole. And at the end of verse 30, Jesus gets to the root issue. What leads to anxiety? And he says, oh, you of little faith. Jesus connects our anxiety and our worry to being a faith issue. The root of anxiety, the root of worry, is due to varying degrees of unbelief in our life. Anytime we feel anxiety, anytime we feel worry, which is going to happen because we're not perfect, but anytime it does, we need to realize it stems from us lacking trust in God. Our faith is wavering in our Heavenly Father. There's been said so many times that, that one of our biggest hiccups as followers of Christ, one of the, the points that we, we stumble in the most is that we, while we believe in Jesus, we don't necessarily always believe Jesus. Like we believe in him for salvation, but then we don't always believe all of the things that he says that come along with that, and we don't lay hold of the things that he promises in this great salvation. I think it's important to remind us at this point that we established at the beginning of the series on the Sermon on the Mount that what the Sermon on the Mount is for is, is for the disciples of Jesus. And it is not for the world. It is for those who have placed their faith in Christ. We need to be reminded of that. Because remember here, Jesus is calling out little faith. He's not saying no faith. It's important to recognize that. We're not talking about a salvation issue. We are secure in Christ. We are secure in Christ as his people. So he's talking about true disciples who are saved, who call God our Father, but whose faith is. And not in a positive way, like the mustard seed, but in a detrimental way. And there's so many different factors that can lead us to having small faith or faith being weakened. We actually talked about this a little bit in our men's group on Tuesdays that, that the actions of another person can cause us to stumble. One of the real things we have to face the actions of another person can cause us to stumble. Oftentimes, our own immaturity, our own rebelliousness is probably the biggest factor in why we stumble in our faith. But there could be difficult circumstances. As well, we have to face. But I want to touch on just this one reason for weak faith. Because I think it's one of those things that I don't want to lay a heavier burden than what is due. But I believe there's at least one area in, in some of our lives that an exhortation is needed. And it's this I think one of the saddest situations that I will come across as a pastor is the brother or sister in Christ who is content with just being in the faith. 
It's one of the saddest situations. It's kind of like, I don't know why this came to mind, and I'm going to age myself a little bit for some of the people in here, but it reminds me of like the high school dances, you know, the much music video dances, right? The, the guys would come, yeah, much music video dances. Uh, I'm hitting the, well, I'm missing the older and the younger in that. It's like right here. That's going to understand that one. But, but the much music video dances, right? the, the guys would, would come in the door, they'd be in the door, but then where'd they be? Back wall, right? Trying not to be seen. And then a slow dance comes on, and like, that's my jam. I can handle it. Right? But for the most part, like, hoping you're a chameleon, nobody's going to notice me. Just inside the door. But one of the saddest things we can do in our faith is that we can have little faith, little faith because that's what we're supposed to That's what we're doing. We have saving faith. We're in the door. But we're happy with that. We don't want anything. We're saved and we're stagnant. We're not really desiring anymore. And let me tell you, honestly, if that's you, if you're here this morning and you know that's you, like I'm in the door, Jesus is my Savior, but I just don't want to really step into anything else than that. I can tell you that you're setting yourself up to be in a position where you're going to struggle with worry where you're going to struggle with anxiety, where you're going to struggle with trouble. Because if you're in the door and you're just happy being there and you're unwilling to press into Jesus, not only are you robbing yourself of a deeply fulfilling life that is available in Jesus Christ, but you're robbing yourself of the opportunity to grow in your faith and trust Christ that you may know your Heavenly Father loves you, that you may know that He's going to take care of you. Because sometimes it just takes stepping out. It doesn't always work that we can read these and go, yeah, I know God's going to take care of me. But we really realize that's true when we step into it. We go, oh, God is actually taking care of me. But some of us are so willing to just stay back here. Though I may, I, it may be true, but I don't really want to test it. Just That's what faith is, stepping in and trusting. Oh, he's proven it for He is going to take care of me. We won't cast off worry. We won't cast off anxiousness unless we press into our What are some of the signs that we struggle with little things? Give you just five. First one is we, we allow circumstances to master. And we're supposed to be masters in our circumstances. You know, see beyond the circumstances, trust in the Lord in the midst of our circumstances. And that's Hard sometimes, depending on what it is, but, but we are to master our circumstances, not have them master us. We're not able to rejoice in tribulations. It's a good sign that you're struggling with your faith. If you cannot be in the midst of a tribulation and still have this underlying joy that Paul talks about, right? Be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. There's just this trust that pushes you and presses you in in the midst of difficulty. Instead of taking our thoughts captive, right, we're completely taken captive by our thoughts. Worry and anxiousness and doubts and lies just coming at us constantly. I think all of these kind of fit into this one box that we, we don't confidently recognize our position in Christ. We don't actually recognize who we are 
as heirs, as children, as those bought by a price, as those who are brand new, of all the things that God says about us as his children. I think one of the biggest things that we'll see practically in our lives when we have little faith is that we're going to live like the world. That's what's going to happen. We're, we're going to look exactly the same as the world. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 31 to 32, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. The word Gentile here in this instance is this all-encompassing term for pagans, for, for unbelievers. So when, when you have little faith, when we struggle with little faith, we're going to look exactly like those who don't know Jesus. The more we struggle with unbelief, the more like the world we're going to look and the more like the world we're going to live. And so what does your life look like? Very real question that we have to ask ourselves. Does it look like a light on a hill? Or does it look exactly the same as your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus? It shouldn't. If it does, what does it say about our faith? What does it say about what we believe? Not to live with worry, not to live with anxiety. And Jesus says, there's a cure. There's a cure for these things. Matthew 6, 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added. All these things will be added. In Christ, we're, we're not just to refrain from worry. But we're not just to refrain from making these things our primary pursuit. We're, we're actually supposed to replace that with a new primary pursuit. So while we don't pursue these things, our new primary pursuit, our new thing that we're going after with greater significance is seeking the kingdom of God first. That becomes our priority. And right in this verse is this incredible promise that Jesus gives us there. Just seek first the kingdom of God and all of these things that you're worrying about will be added to you. It comes when you seek the kingdom first. That's amazing. But do we believe it? So let's end by answering the question, how, how do we seek the kingdom? And I could do an entire sermon on this, so... Don't hold me to what I say as if the only thing. There's so many things we can say in here, but I just want to give you just a couple of things. Very practical. First is we do whatever we can to develop an awe in our hearts and our minds of the rule and the reign and the sovereignty and the glory of our heavenly if we can stare into the king that we serve and see he is over everything. He is almighty. He is in control. Like what do we have to worry about as those who belong to him? Right? And, and to get into the word, look at those things, talk about the greatness and the glory and the almightiness of God and get that into your heart and pray to your heavenly father that would get into your heart that you would have this lifted up view of the glory of God. And it would just consume throughout your day. Second thing we can do, I think very practically, is 
we can go up a few verses and look at the Lord's Prayer and, and live out even just specifically the first three lines of the Lord's Prayer. I think there's a reason why Jesus puts the Lord's Prayer first before he says, seek first the kingdom of God, because a big part of seeking the kingdom of God is living out the Lord's Prayer. Right? Because what's the first thing that we pray for? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's not us sitting there and going, God, you're holy. That's not what it is. It's not a declaration. It's an ask. We're petitioning the Lord. God, would you make yourself holy in my life? Today, as I live, would everything I do be unto you, you who are holy. Be holy, God, in my life. Second, living with intent of bringing God's kingdom on earth. Right? May your kingdom come. May your will be done. I'm going to live my life that way, Lord. Your kingdom, your will, not mine. To the degree that you want to bring it, I am going to bring it. And then last, what does he say? Ask him for our daily bread. Seek him for our needs. He says pray for your daily bread. It's a tangible way of showing I know everything comes from God. When I get up in the morning and I ask the Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Everything that it's a tangible way of showing that we recognize that as we work, he is providing. It isn't that true to any level that you can think of. Like, well, I worked. I made the money. I brought it home. Yeah, but he gave you breath in your lungs and you can't even go to work. He got you up in the morning. Your heart was still beating because of his grace. And I love that Jesus says, our daily bread. Right? It's not weekly. It's not monthly. We show an acknowledgement every day of God's popular life. I think this also reminds us that we live in the moment. That we talked last week, yes, we have to make provision for the future. Yes, that is wise. But we don't sit there and worry about tomorrow and the next day and the next month and the next week. What could possibly happen? Jesus says, no, no, I, I got that. You trust in me and you just stay here. Live in the moment. Trust me that I got what's coming next. Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known. I want to leave you with um, question 26 on how to work out. I think it just sums up beautifully what we talked about. The question is, what do you believe when you say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator? This is what we believe. That the Eternal Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth, and all that is in them, and who still upholds and governs them by his eternal counsel and providence is for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father, in whom I trust so completely as to have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul, and will also turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this life of sorrow. He is able to do so as Almighty God 
and willing also as a faithful Heavenly Father, I thank you in this moment for your faith. We can get ahead of ourselves sometimes. And at times we just need to stop and take a moment and realize that we're here this morning. That we are worshiping you. And we are opening your word because you gave us breath today. Because you decided they will get up out of bed today. Their heart will be. The, love, the, the air that I put in their lungs will be used to worship my name. And I thank you, Lord, for it. Father, I thank you that you are sovereign. That your word says you, you even feed the birds. May that, that simple picture of nature, getting what is required, remind us that we need not work. You are almighty God. You are Lord of lords, king of able to do so much more money than what we need. Father, for those of us who struggle with worry, who struggle with Remind us that when we do so, that we lack faith. That we're letting something pull us away from you, letting something distract us from you. And in those moments, give us the grace, Lord, to fight it. Give us the mercy we need to look back and lift our eyes up. And be reminded that you are in control. Lord, thank you that you said you love us. Thank you that you not sparing you only said you would give us all that we need. We give you praise, Lord. We lift our eyes to you today and we thank you as our good friend. It's in Jesus' name.